Hi, I'm Miranda. And I'm Stephanie. We've been friends for more than 15 years. I live in Ottawa. And I live in Winnipeg. I'm raising two girls. And I'm raising two boys. We're both wives and working moms who do our best to make it all work and to enjoy our empowered lives. We think feminism is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And we love to learn, especially from other women. So we started Women Don't Do That to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. Laura Payton is a professional communicator with more than 15 years of experience. She spent most of that time as a journalist on Parliament Hill, where she covered everything from the environment to international development. Laura made the leap to the public service two years ago and is now the acting manager of external strategic communications for the communications security establishment. When she's not working, she's desperately trying to remember what it felt like to have hobbies prior to having a child. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. I love that piece so much about... Um, hobbies like it's not funny but it is <laughs> I was trying to think because I used to have to write bios for work right. and I was like I used to run I used to do yoga <laughs> yeah I know I've been thinking about that as my kids have gotten older right like some of your interests may have changed or you haven't done them in so long do you want to do them again and it is you know an interesting topic when we talk about you know women trying to do all the things and some of the challenges that come along with that it's a it's very relatable <laughs> i wanted to mention for people so laura and i don't uh, know each other but we're aware of each other because of laura's work in the political space uh previously and mine as well so where i was drawn to some of the the things that you were sharing on twitter and thought it would be really interesting to interview you well i'm happy to be here and talk it must be um interesting to be on the other side of being interviewed sometimes Yes, yes. Yeah. It, it, it's really nerve-wracking, actually. Like, I wish I had done it more when, like, it's harder when you're younger and starting out because nobody wants to talk to you then, but it gives you a better sense of how nervous people get and why. You know, there, there's a lot of trust that you place in an interviewer. Right. I, I've heard that from other people that it's, yeah, they, it's surprising how nervous they get, even if they're in a position where they're, they're usually interviewing people. I wanted to start by asking you what motivates you to live your best life. I like this question because it made me think about it. Um, I think it's happiness. Like I want to be happy and I want um, my husband and my friends and my child to be happy. And so I'll take steps to, you know, I'll, I'll make the choices that I think will just keep us content. And we're very fortunate to already be content, but I think that that is definitely what motivates me. That's really interesting. It's so important, especially when we're living in COVID times, to try and find those moments of happiness. I wonder if your answer would have been different before COVID. That would be curious. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't thought about it. Which yes. I mean, again, it's so privileged to be able to say, like, I haven't thought about that. But yes. Yeah. What does life look for you right now during COVID? Uh, well, we're lucky that our child is in daycare. We made a choice early on um when they reopened back in july like i think everywhere they were allowed to open in june but ours took some time to take the proper precautions um mm -hmm. and the case counts in ottawa were fairly low there was no community transmission the daycare was being super cautious um so we fortunately got him back into daycare and then working from home just became so much easier as any parent will attest 
Um, so, uh, you know, the days are more chill because we can sleep in a little because I don't have to get to work. You know, my work is at my dining room table <laughs> um, instead of commuting. And uh, my kid goes to daycare and then I pick him up, you know, around 4.30, uh, do the dinner scramble and get him to bed and then kind of just veg out after that. Mm-hmm. So if there are opportunities over the longer term to work from home some, is that something that now that you've done it, you would enjoy? Yeah, I think I like the mix because I do miss my mm-hmm. colleagues. Yes. We do a lot of, like we have a daily video meeting, video chat meeting. Um, and just generally, I think as communicators, our first route to discuss issues is to just like start the video chat. So I feel like that helps a lot, but I do miss seeing them in person. So I think I would prefer a mix, like maybe one or two days a week or just as needed if you have a delivery or a repair person come in. Like I think that's the ideal. Mm-hmm. I, li- I like that mix. It sounds uh, quite nice. What are some of the strategies that are helping you just get through this challenging time? I think I keep making time to read for fun mm-hmm. because um, I kind of rediscovered that on my maternity leave, my first maternity leave, just reading novels. Um, I used to put a lot of pressure on myself to read all the political bios and the big important current affairs books. And I just would like collect these books and start them and never finish them. (laughs) I do the same thing. (laughs) Some of them are so boring. Some of them are great. Some of them are so boring. I do the exact same thing. Just like, I don't, I, if I spend all day sitting in it, it's not what I want to do at night. So, you know, I kind of discovered that with, I think I really started with, um, Leanne Moriarty, who wrote Big Little Lies. Oh, yeah. She's a great writer, and she's got a whole range of novels. And I think I rediscovered my my love of reading that way, and then um, mostly make an effort to just read books for fun. So mm-hmm. that uh, that has helped keep me a bit sane. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's, it's true. It, it lets you just not think about what's happening in the day-to-day that's stressful and and get into something else. I've been able to do a little bit of that as well. So it is, it is quite nice if, if people are able to find the time to do that. In March, you wrote an article for Flair magazine. It was called, we need to talk about what miscarriage is actually like. Women deserve better information so they can prepare themselves for the pain. And recently, I saw you tweeting some frustration around the fact that this is a really important topic and people weren't talking about it because now everything has turned to COVID. And it's really what piqued um, my interest in thinking, oh, we we should have her on so we can talk about this. Can you share some of your miscarriage story with us? Yeah, sure. And maybe I'll start with the less important stuff, which is just that you know, it ran the Monday before we all went into isolation. So I knew as soon as that happened, I was like, all my interview requests are getting canceled. And that was totally fair. You know, the pandemic was the biggest story for the entire world. Um, But I was hoping that eventually people would start paying attention to other things. And I just think, you know, I wrote the piece because of exactly what the headline says. There's not enough information available to women and miscarriage is incredibly common and I wanted more people to know about it. And so it was disappointing to me that once things started to get more back to normal, I still couldn't, you know, pick up the interest again. So I'm really glad that you wanted to talk about it. Um, so last December, I was just about 13 weeks pregnant and I started having some spotting and I, it was like, Saturday morning, I think. Um, And I had a doctor's appointment the next week. 
and it was just such light spotting. I thought, well, I'm not going to worry about it because that can happen, you know? And then it got worse and worse. And by Sunday afternoon I was cramping and then I knew it was happening. And, um, but I couldn't reach my doctor over the weekend, obviously, cause that's not how it works. So, mm-hmm. um, I had to kind of sit there all weekend and just do a lot of internet research, um, Googling and trying to sort things out. And then by the time it really kicked into gear Monday, I had full on labor pain and, um, my husband took me to the hospital and I just had like a ton of bleeding and, uh, it was really disturbing to me that, you know, the advice, every piece of advice I found online on reputable websites, like the Mayo Clinic or like Canadian hospitals, um, all of that information ended at, if you have cramping and bleeding, go to the ER. There was nothing that came after to say like, when we say cramping, you might feel like you're in labor. Like that's, that's a big difference. Yes. And because you've already delivered a child, you knew what that felt like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually, in a way, it was fascinating. Like, I went to my GP first because I did when I, I called Monday morning right away and they got me in for later in the day. And so I thought the really bad cramping had just started before the appointment. So I went to the appointment anyway. And they're basically like, well, we can't do anything for you. Even if you want proper pain control, you have to go to the ER. Um, but, and I had the labor pains there and I threw up into the garbage can. And I was kind of fascinated, even though I was traumatized, but I was fascinated by how similar it was to being in labor. Hmm. Um, Yeah. And again, like I hadn't seen that description anywhere. Yeah. And it's apparently, depending on how much tissue you have to pass, it can be very common. And I talked to a lot of women afterward who had those kinds of pains when they had taken... um, the medication afterward if they had more tissue to pass after the miscarriage or if they had a missed miscarriage and had to pass all of the tissue and for women who had never been in labor they had no idea what to expect mm, yeah and not all doctors were good about giving them proper pain meds like my doctor gave me some very serious pain medication which i fortunately didn't need but for you know people i knew who had a ton of tissue to pass and they um didn't know what to expect and they were given like tylenol 3 yeah So I just, you know, we can't advocate properly for ourselves if we don't know what to expect. And Mm -hmm. I kind of, maybe because of my background, I thrive on research and it's how I bring a sense of control to my life when I feel out of control. Um, And so I was kind of shocked that there wasn't better information or more thorough information available. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Like when I read the article, it does make you realize just how much information isn't out there, how much the conversation doesn't happen in the day to day, you know, you'll see, you know, once a year, people will post on their Facebook when there's days around related to infant loss or these types of conversations. And I I even have friends that have had them and we've had really deep conversations about some other really challenging things in their lives, but we've really never dived into this topic. And Um, I remember between my two pregnancies, even when I was trying to get pregnant, like every time I'd get my period, I would be like devastated and wonder like, is it my period or like, is that a miscarriage? And like, there was one time I kind of wondered, but I I don't think I ever really did. But just to have those conversations about what people are going through. So I know, so some of the things you've talked about um, 
we need to have different types of conversations and we also need changes to the system. Can you talk about some of the things that you think need to change? Yeah, I had a not great experience at the hospital um, and I followed up with them through patient relations and had a really good experience with patient relations where great. they they really took my concerns seriously. And I think it helped me deal with some of the trauma um, from that night where I'd gone in and they had said they would, that I was at the front of the line for a bed. And then, you know, it took two hours. And at that point um, the fetus had passed and it was really horrifying. Uh, that was a really bad experience. So, you know, when I talked to them, they explained what had been going on behind the scenes where the nurse who I'd been dealing with had been phoning and phoning um, the gynecological unit trying to get a bed and they just couldn't clear the patients fast enough. Mm -hmm. um, so they kind of, they came back and they said, listen, we have these kind of spaces we can use a swing space because we agree that, you know, you being in the waiting room wasn't acceptable. And um, that really helped because again, my control, <laughs> my need yeah. for control. I just felt like if I had to be out of control, maybe in future, another woman wouldn't have to deal with that. And so um, the hospital handled it really, really well. And I was grateful for them for taking it so seriously. Yeah, um, that's really good. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I talked to um, the Pregnancy and Infant Loss Network in Ontario, and they do training for medical professionals. And they also do um, counseling, like, support groups for women after the fact and they said that you know like miscarriage is super common it can be as much as like one in four or five pregnancies lost yeah. in miscarriage um but it's still only like two percent of what ERs see so the ER is the only place you can go uh and often you might need some kind of treatment whether it's a referral for an ultrasound to make sure that you passed all the tissue or in my case because I have RH negative blood I needed to get a special injection um, to protect any future pregnancy. So you, you do have to go, but in terms of urgency, you're not a heart attack, you're not a stroke. There's so many other patients they might have to see. And so it's just, I don't even know how you fix that flaw in the system because yeah. it's, they're not built to deal with that kind of situation. Yeah, when, when I was reading the article, I was really struck about, when, like when you put yourself imagining those things happening to you. You talked about, you know, as you were waiting, you, you know, there was blood running down your legs and not wanting to stand up. And then they giving you, them giving you things to change into in the bathroom, which is when, um, when the fetus, the baby came out, right. And yeah. you're in there alone going through this experience and uh, just the emotion that goes through that. I know it's, it's trauma and, and we will get into talking a little bit more about some of the effects it had on you longer term, but it makes me think about some of the broader conversations around women's issues where there's not enough thought put into some of the policies sometimes around, you know, how, how do we help women through issues like miscarriage? And then even to things like, um, like research for autistic women, right? Like the, and this is why we're 
we're often advocating for women to be in policy positions or political positions to have them be part of the process um, who have experience with going through some of these things. You and I were chatting before we got on that I suffer from chronic migraines and it's an issue that tends to be uh, more, more women have experience with it. And even menopause, like I know very little about it because women just suck it up and keep going. And so I think there needs to be changes to the system, but there's also a lot of systemic issues around all kinds of these issues related to women that uh, we need to see change. Yeah. Like I was so fortunate because the doctors and nurses I had were incredibly compassionate, but you know, there's studies that show that women's pain is dismissed often by medical professionals and uh, indigenous or black women or other women of color have even more hurdles. Um, you know, black women in the States, I don't know what the stats are in Canada. I don't think we keep them um, by race, but maternal health outcomes for women in America, for black women in America are far worse than white women. So there's a lot of systemic issues with the system mm-hmm. um, that, you know, need people in leadership to fix. Yes. It was interesting, your conversation about vulnerability and wanting to do something about it and, and solve the problem. It's, it's not the same at all, but it does make me think about, um, there was a possibility when I was pregnant with my first that I was going to need a C-section and then things changed and then I wasn't going to need one. So in my head, I wasn't having a C-section, everything was fine. And then when I went in for delivery, everything was not fine. (laughs) And I ended up having to have a C-section. And I remember my cousin was a nurse and I asked her to come with me when, when I delivered and everything. So she was in there and she said to me, um, do you understand what's happening to you? Cause I was on a lot of drugs by this point and you know, and I said, yes. And then she's like, they're going to give you a C-section. Like, are you okay with that? And I said, yes, because what point do you have? And yeah. I knew I didn't have an option, but just her allowing me to say that it was okay made a big difference. And it wasn't like the other doctors or the midwife or anybody else who gave me that opportunity was her. And The other thing that really struck me was when I was on the operating table, and I I still remember it, uh, they make you put your arms out on, like you're in a cross position. Mm -hmm. And normally when you're scared or something and you want to comfort yourself, you, you hug yourself, you cross your arms around yourself. And so just even being in that position was so vulnerable for me. And when I think about you know, some of the, my memory of some of those experiences and what was scary or what mattered to me. Um, it's obviously very different than what you experienced. And I don't want to make that connection, but just that, that vulnerability piece, I think is really impactful in terms of how it affects you over the longer term. Yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't know about the, the arms out during a C-section. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's different in different places, but uh, that's what it was like here. I think some of it is being able to prepare too. So when I had my first, you know, I, I had read enough about birthing and labor that I didn't want to be super prescriptive with my birth plan. So my birth plan was like five bullet points. Um, And then when I did go in, it actually happened so fast that uh, basically nothing on the birth plan was followed. Like I pulled it out of my hospital bag after yeah. I'd given birth and I, I just laughed because it was like, yes, 
give me all of the drugs. And when I got there, like my OB had reassured me there was never a point in labor where it was too late to, to not get the drugs. But it was too late when I got to the hospital to get the drugs. Oh, no. Oh, no. So I had to have a natural birth um, that I didn't want. Uh, and then like, you know, they had used forceps, which just was to out of necessity, which I hadn't really wanted. But, um, but just at least I had been prepared for the idea yes. that like my birth plan is not set in stone. Like things will change. I just want a, ha a healthy child. So. Yes. And I think that was what is one of the issues with my C-section is because I didn't feel prepared at all because it once it was, off the I table. Was, it was off the table. And so I wasn't going in with that open perspective of whatever happens, happens. And it, you know, I say it out loud and it sounds ridiculous how much something like that impacts you, but it does make me come back to one of your key points, which is about women need more information about one, that it's very common and two, what it is like. Yeah. And I think that's, it's incumbent on the experts who provide the information, right? Like the websites that I was referring to, for example, because, you know, like I said in the piece, I have friends who have had miscarriage, but you don't ask them for the details because you don't want to further traumatize them, right? So that's true. You know, like I would have listened had they seemed to want to describe it, but nobody, whether it was for my comfort or theirs, nobody ever seemed to want to describe it. Um, maybe I should have asked gently, like, you know, do you want to talk about it more? But because again, this is another problem. Like we feel like we're preserving other people's emotions by not talking about it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, even advice about how people can talk to other people about these types of things. Um, the co-founder of women don't do that. Miranda had a child pass away and I had a friend before this happened to Miranda that had had kids pass away from something very similar. And so I had watched, she was very open. So I watched um, this woman talk a lot about Facebook about, we want to hear our child's name. We want to still talk about it. And it really helped me then when it happened to Miranda to be able to have some of the conversations I think before that it would have been scared of. But had I have not had that kind of education, I guess I would say, I wouldn't have been comfortable and wouldn't have known what to say. And I, I like what you said there about like, do you want to talk about it? Gives them the opportunity of whether they would like to or not. I think that's really good for us to think about. One of the other things that stood out from your story, Laura, was the post effects. So you go through this experience, it's obviously very traumatic, but the effects that it had on you afterwards, can you speak to that experience a bit? Yeah, it was, it was just constant reminders. Like, I mean, obviously there was huge grief right afterward. Um, and I would go, I would swing from like being okay, being, I think numb to just bawling my eyes out. Um, and sometimes again, it was like the research after the fact where everything I saw was like, once a miscarriage starts, you can't stop it. And I was like, well, how could I have stopped? Like, what could I have done to prevent it? Right. You know, it kind of, I felt like it was putting the onus on me again. Like maybe if I'd gone to the hospital immediately, once the bleed, once the spotting started, like then we could have, they could have given me something and I could have stopped it. Um, and, and reading the stats too, like by the time you hit 13 weeks, which is when my actual, like everything kind of passed, you know, started two days before, but then it was 13 weeks when it's, when it really happened. Um, I can't remember what the chances are of it happening then, but it was something like, like 
2% chance of a miscarriage or 5% chance of a miscarriage. And I was just like, why? Like we'd heard the heartbeat, everything went fine. Why? And, and I was running through all of the things that I might've done to myself. Like I had been in Montreal with some girlfriends and I'd had a ham and gruyere croissant, which is like, the, you know, two things that are on the band list. Um, or I gone to a yoga class that was supposed to be a normal temperature and it was a hot yoga. It ended up being really hot. And I was like, maybe that's what did it. And, you know, it didn't matter how many people said it wasn't your fault. It just happens. And it was probably something genetic or some kind of developmental problem. Um, like my, my GP said it, my husband said it. And mm-hmm. it, I just, I, I couldn't take solace in that because mm-hmm. I think, and actually I had, I had a, an emotional discussion with my husband at one point because I was like you don't know what it's like to have all the pressure on you to not eat this giant list of things and to not overexert yourself and to do this and that you know like it's all on you when you're growing another human and I think sometimes people go a little bit overboard um, with the concerns and it just puts additional pressure on women but um, I, I just felt so responsible. Like, mm-hmm. like it obviously had to be something like in my mind at that point, it obviously had to be something that I had done because otherwise there had been no sign of any problem. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about if we are able to normalize some of these conversations and have, uh, conversations about how common it is and people be aware that the conversation doesn't stop there. We also need to talk about then like that it's hard and the impacts, we, we don't want people to just say, oh, well, it's normal, so why are you upset? Like, that's not the point either. Um, so we actually have a long way to go until uh, we've moved further in progress over, over um, miscarriage. Yeah. You're really pregnant right now. <laughs> yes. you're, you've already fraudulent. started your mad leave, so I know you're really pregnant. Um, it's so fraudulent to talk about miscarriage when I am happily almost done um, a healthy pregnancy now. Yeah, and that, that's what I wanted to ask you. Did you find it impacted you differently? I mean, I, I'm sure it has, but in what ways has it compared to um, your first pregnancy, I guess? Yeah, we were so lucky with our first pregnancy and I didn't, I knew it, but I didn't understand it. So Mm -hmm. this has given me perspective on my friends who had struggled to conceive and my friends who had lost a pregnancy prior to have a healthy one. Um, Because our, our first was, you know, more or less aside from a couple of hiccups was very joyful. Um, And this time, you know, I was so lucky to get pregnant again. I was pregnant the first month after, like I waited to heal and then we were successful. Um, and it, I was constantly checking for blood, like constantly. Every time I went to the bathroom, every time just like you feel something, you think you might be bleeding, I would go check. Um, I joined a support group, which mm-hmm. I thought would be helpful and in the end, actually, I, I stopped going because I was so early in my pregnancy when I started going and all of the women, these incredibly strong women, had had miscarriages later than mine. So, or they're like 
past where I was in my pregnancy. So every time I hit a certain week in the pregnancy, I would think, well, this woman miscarried that week, or, you know, I still haven't hit 18 weeks, which is when that other woman miscarried. And then, and even, you know, one of the women had had a stillbirth. So even that's kind of still in the back of my mind. Um, And, and so I would be okay. You know, I would be doing fairly well. And then I would go to the support group and just, um, I found it very challenging. Like I was, I would just end up in tears. So, mm-hmm. and fortunately I could afford um, private therapy as well. So I was doing one-on-one counseling and I talked it over with my therapist and, and she was like, if it's more harm than good, then you don't need to go, right? Like you yes. have to do what, what makes sense for you. So I'm grateful that that service was there, but I didn't find it. I found the discussions useful, but I just found myself um, the reminders were too painful of like at all the possible points where I could have lost the baby still. Mm. So I found that really different. And actually my therapist was the one who gave me permission to kind of celebrate the pregnancy. Like, Mm. I think I made it to, I like, she knew that 13 weeks was going to be a big milestone for me. And then after that you have the 18 month ultrasound. And so that was another one. And I think I got to around like, 14, 15 weeks and have been talking about how I just didn't want to think about a baby room and I didn't want to think about names or, you know, debate, like do, do the fun stuff that you do in a pregnancy. Yes. And she said, you know, you're building this wall to protect your heart, but do you think you'll feel any less grief if it happens again? And you've, you know, you've set yourself up this way. And it really gave me permission to find those the more joyful moments and celebrate it and start actually planning and looking forward to it instead of just telling myself, like reminding myself constantly that it could go wrong at any moment. Right. I like what you said about um, finding what works for you and that's good advice for people going through all kinds of different things and even COVID, right? Like somebody can say, this is the best way to handle this, but that you were able to say, you know, this is interesting and it might work well for other people, but this is just not something that is helping me right now. I think that's a really important point for people because often we get hung up on, you know, so-and-so says X is the best thing you can do right now, but it's not doing anything for you. Um, So I think that's good for people to keep in mind. It's so personal. The other thing is like something that I took a lot of comfort in. Uh, I, I found this statistic and I can't remember where it was from maybe like a British medical like miscarriage book I was reading but um, your chances after one miscarriage of the next pregnancy being healthy is something like 80 percent and so I just kind of kept focusing on that and that I found helpful so if there's anyone listening to this right now who has had a miscarriage you know your chances are quite good of still having a, a healthy pregnancy subsequently. How have things changed for you being pregnant in a pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's been really weird because like we do the kind of whatever the social media announcement um, for friends and family, but for like a broader, like the, the acquaintances you might run into working downtown or just being out and about, like I have to actively tell people that I'm pregnant. Right. And so it feels very like, like it's sort of this weird aside, like, oh, by the way, I'm going on mat leave in four weeks. And people were like, what? 
because yeah. you can't see it on a Zoom call. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. And it just it just feels very like personal to share actively when it's not part of the conversation. So yes. that's been weird. Like my I hit the 12 week mark after we were in isolation. So I had to tell my bosses by phone, you know, which yes. was very strange. Um, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I was so ill with my pregnancies. Um like the first one I threw up every day, the whole nine months, like even oh, though I was God. on medication, it was awful. Like I'd be in my cubicle and like people could hear me throwing up. Like it was awful. <laughs> and um, I just think about, yeah, like I probably would want most people to know that I was having calls with because I would have to like jump off and like go throw up. So, but yes, it would feel very personal and invasive on every call to be like, by the way, I'm pregnant and might throw up. Like it's just... <laughs> On the bright side, though, working yeah. from home while pregnant is amazing. Yes. Because, oh, that's great. Like, my yeah. belly gets so itchy, and I just, like, walk around with my shirt pulled up because nobody <laughs> else is here. Yeah. Well, or, like, and walking around barefoot, like, things that you would never be able to do at the office. Yeah. I'm like, whatever, I'm at home. If some people are listening that do not have kids yet, not every pregnancy makes you throw up every day. That is not completely normal. It does happen to some people, but it's not normal. So you're not terrified of pregnancy. Um, is there anything else in terms of um, pregnancy or miscarriage that you want to add before we move on to talking about something else? I don't think so. Just, I'm so glad that you're, again, giving me the platform to talk about it because I just want women to know, like the information, I just, I feel so passionately. Information needs to be there because I don't think I'm the only one who no. copes by finding quality information and women need to be prepared for what's going to happen. Even if they were to get in to the ER super fast and get immediate care, like you still need to be aware of what to expect. So I hope that more people talk about it. And I actually found people so open to talking about it. And so mm -hmm. many women were messaging me or like colleagues coming up to me at work to talk about their own experiences. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask you that. Did you find like, it seems like on Twitter, lots of people were then talking about it or sharing their experiences. It sounded like you had some interviews and then some of them are also canceled. So I guess there is interest, but one of the things that's challenging with the pandemic is there's so many really important issues that we weren't far enough along on dealing with properly. And then the pandemic, um, kind of crashes everything and obviously it's an emergency and we need to deal with a lot of issues but there's so much at stake in terms of us not getting it right and actually moving backwards on a lot of issues and as a lobbyist I'm seeing that because you're trying to get attention on some important issues and the government just has no time to focus on those things even yeah, though there's no bandwidth there's really important yeah and and I mean you can't blame them either right so it's um yeah yeah, it's a very challenging time. So yes, I hope that yeah. um, more conversations are sparked and that uh, we're not moving backwards on some of these really important conversations. Yeah. The one thing that really frustrated me was um, one of the producers I've been discussing an interview request with when I followed up in the summer to say like, listen, you know, I still feel passionately about this. Do you think you guys want to do the interview? She said, well, like what's new? Like, have you, you know, are you still getting messages or, you know, what's new about it? And I was kind of like, well, like miscarriage wasn't new when it happened to me. Yeah. And my miscarriage wasn't even new when my story was published. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. It's not about 
me it's about the fact that it's super common and yeah I, like and I, half I found of that- society is like women not all of them give birth but you know what I mean like it's yeah yeah like I, I get it I used to be a journalist I obviously understand like you want the news hook right but I was like you know surely there's a way to discuss miscarriage that doesn't need to be like oh this woman just miscarried and wants to talk about it so yes yeah, yeah. I'm frustrated for you if that <laughs> makes it better at all. I want to jump in quickly and ask you, I'm just curious, maybe other people are, but so you worked in politics doing media, being part of media. And yeah, I was a journalist to, on the Hill. Yeah. And then you moved to more communications roles. So those are both communications roles, but um, what was behind your thought process in terms of switching? Because as much as they're both communication, they're very different. Yeah. Uh, and I never thought I would make that switch. And then I had a baby. <laughs> so there, there were really two, two things I was considering when I made the switch. One was I had spent so much time um, covering politics and it's sort of hard to keep moving up in the media, like as a journalist, unless you want to be a boss of some kind or basically like I felt like the only way to continue upward movement was to go and do like national TV. And those are crazy, like 12, 14 hour days every day. And that was not something that I wanted for my life. Uh, going back to my thing about seeking happiness, I guess, um, right. was a motivator. So I was kind of frustrated with just like, where can I go from here? Right. And then also being married to a journalist and having very unpredictable hours uh, and no family in Ottawa as backfill. So, you know, if we couldn't pick up our child by 5 p.m. because of breaking news, there was nobody else here that we had who could do it. Also, because most of our friends are journalists or staffers. So that, <laughs> <laughs> they're yeah. all stuck at work too. Um, yeah. So that was a big motivator. And then I just, you know, when I first started, when I first left university, I had a lot of friends who joined the public service and they all sounded super bored, like, you know, 20 years ago. And I think, but over the years, my friends in the public service seem to really love their jobs and feel passionate about them and motivated to do really well for Canadians. And so I realized that journalism wasn't the only career path that could feel fulfilling. Right. And I started looking around and fortunately had a friend who introduced me to my current boss um, and we chatted and I really liked what he had to say about how they were doing communications in his shop. And uh, I just kind of went from there. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I've, I've heard that from other people that work in journalism too, um, that they have made similar choices and um, part of it makes sense and part of it just makes me sad because you know, we need people like you at all kinds of different levels of media. And you're right, like the system isn't set up that way, just like it's not for politics, right? Like there's just so many systems that um, still don't function in a way that allow people, and especially women, if they want to balance between work and family life in a way that makes sense. Yeah, it's really unfortunate because when you look at you know, and I'd looked around the, at the press gallery before I went on mat leave and I had observed like there aren't, there was maybe one couple where both people were in the press gallery who had children, but they were older children. And I don't know how they managed to make it as far as they did for as long as they did. Mm-hmm. Um, 
given their jobs. Um, yes. But everybody else, like one of the spouses at least had left journalism and it was usually the woman. Right. Which is also unfortunate. Yeah. No, I also, you know, I have a very good friend who's made it work and she's excelled at it. Um, but they have family supports in town. And I think that's a big piece that was missing for us. Yeah, no, that, and that's the thing when it comes down to not judging people for their choices, because you never know what's going on in people's lives or, yeah, for anything at the end of the day. Uh, I find that with COVID, right? Like, at least in Canada, Ontario, where you and I live, there are lots of choices right now in terms of education mechanisms for your kids. Um, And people are choosing different things. And, you know, there's some controversy around that. But at the end of the day, it's a global pandemic. And you don't know what's going on in people's lives, or why they're choosing things the way that they're choosing them. It makes me think about, um, this is kind of a side comment, but um, when I used to work downtown doing lobbying, I used to say to my friends, I'd say, well, like, what do you do for fun? So like, let's say they would go and play volleyball once a week. I would say, well, I work. So like on those one <laughs> or two nights a week where like, you know, Ralph would go, that's my husband, Ralph would go play hockey. And then I would work late and do like receptions because a large part yeah. of doing the type of work that both of us have, have done is networking. And so I was like, unfortunately, I'm not willing to spend more time than that away from my kids. So my extracurricular is working. (laughs) Right now, this is just what it is. Um, And that was just just life. And I'm still doing that kind of work right now. But at least with COVID, um, there's not events happening all the time. Um, So who knows, maybe the world will operate in a much easier system in some ways afterwards. It'll be fascinating to see how, uh, how things change. Is there anything else you want to add before I'm going to ask ask you the final questions we like to ask all our guests no I'm good it's funny I um because I'm frozen right now and I'm still using my hands like you can see me I'm giving (laughs) you great like visual cues of what I'm doing right now I wish you could see me (laughs) okay we like to close things off by asking women a set of questions so here goes what is the best rule you ever broke I'm not a big rule breaker even though I feel like I'm kind of rebellious sometimes. I think it would be, you know, whatever ingrained rules we have as women about being quiet and polite, because (laughs) being a journalist, you have to throw all that away, right? You have to be loud in scrums. You have to be firm. You have to stick to your guns. And um, one of the things I loved about journalism was being able to ask these really impertinent questions of very powerful people because it was the job. So I, I guess that's the rule that I broke. It's um, a great clean. one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's something that, um, you know, I have a son right now, so it's not a, something that I deal with, but I have always felt like if I had a daughter, I would want to teach her that it's okay to question authority. And yes, because that's not something that I was raised to feel. Right. Um, and I just think it's super key. Yeah. I have a lot of conversations with my daughter. I have two daughters about, you know, they're already starting the whole attitude thing. And I will try and say to them, it's not what you're saying to me, it's how you say it. You're allowed to push back and you're allowed to disagree, but we are going to have that conversation respectfully. And if you do, we can have it. If you don't, we can't have it. Like that's That's a great way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I'm okay with like, and my, I have to say my parents did allow us to push back um, in a respectful way. 
but there were they were also really good like I sang a lot when I was a kid and uh if I was singing like Sunday morning at church then like there might be they might say on a Saturday night like be home at 10 and um but other nights when everybody else had to be home at midnight like I didn't have to and as long as I was being respectful and like told them where I was and um anyways that I found that has served me well especially um you know I'm, I'm always pushing authority right now for work that's what I do so, <laughs> so now it pays the bills um what is the most valuable habit that was hardest to create the most valuable habit uh, was to exercise regularly and I have given that up and I really want to work on that um, post-pregnancy because I can barely walk right now. It is 38 weeks pregnant. It um, is very hard. It's very hard. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think it will continue to be hard in the pandemic world. Like I'm not going to be yes. going to a public class at a studio anytime yes. soon. So, um, but I'm committed to once I get this kid out of me, um, <laughs> walking and running and getting back yeah. into yoga because I, it, it's so important for your mental health. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I think that it, it is a very hard habit. I, I'm sure lots of women right now that are listening are shaking their heads saying yes. My husband for a while went and lived in California and the kids were little and it was three months. Um, and I exercised every day because I knew that mentally I couldn't handle them alone for so long without him, um, just from the mental game. Um, yeah. And for single moms out there, you guys are freaking amazing. <laughs> just yeah. like, no answers about that. Um, can you name another woman that inspires you? Uh, I'm not going to name anyone specific, but I'm so lucky to have a super amazing band of girlfriends who I find inspiring in all kinds of ways every day. They're really career driven. They are respectful of other women. There's no cattiness. Mm, yes. And um, I found that, uh, especially after I gave birth, I remember talking to a public health nurse who was saying like, you know, it's, it's really hard to be a new mom and people don't talk about it enough. And I was like, oh no, no, my girlfriends and I are all <laughs> talking about how hard it is and how much we'd rather be working. And she's yeah. like, oh, okay. Because I guess, I think some, in some circles, it's just you know, you, you fake it and you aren't honest about it because you want to be the perfect mom or the perfect whatever. Right. Um, so I just, I respect uh, my friends who are super honest about their challenges and who are super career driven and unapologetic about that. Yeah, that's great. I think that's good advice for anybody. It can be hard to find those groups of friends, but if you can, it really makes a difference. I have one as well and it, yeah, we've been through so much together. So yeah, that's good advice too. Can you tell us about a book that made you wiser? This is another one where I, I struggled because I, like I said earlier, I like to read for fun and I don't know that those books necessarily make me wiser. Um, I have been trying to read more books by people of color um, or just like, you know, non-white, non-straight authors. And right. I feel like that overall is making me wiser. Um, I also try to read a lot of, uh, like a lot of news and current affairs articles. And I feel like actually reading journalism widely has made me wiser because, hmm. you know, you're more aware of the world around you. You're more yes. aware of all kinds of issues. Right. So yeah. I, th I think more than books, it's for me, it's been just consuming a lot of different media from right. a lot of points of view. 
I like that. I, I on purpose follow quite a wide range of people, partially just politically to know who's saying what and like some of these groups completely hate each other, but you really learn so much. And even if you don't agree with another side, trying to either understand where they come from or recognize that those types of beliefs still exist and it, everybody just doesn't think the way that you do, I think is really powerful. And I would encourage a lot of people uh, to take that approach if you um, want to have just a holistic understanding and be empathetic to other people's views, especially with everything going on in the world today. I think that's really valuable, Laura. Yeah, because even if you disagree with the point of view, people often have a very legitimate reason for holding that opinion. Mm -hmm. And we would all do better to remember that more often. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time and um, being honest with us and allowing that conversation to happen. There'll certainly be some listeners who have lived through uh, that kind of experience and, and maybe haven't even had people to talk to about it. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Women Don't Do That. We hope you're inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do. Find all our podcasts and blog content at womendontdothat.com and stay connected with us on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next time.